When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We do have our first educational segment coming up here, and it is with a guy that has been around for a while, James Putra. He's VP at TradeStation Crypto. James, I know you've been around the fintech industry for a long time, and I know you've been one of the guys that has helped get crypto going at TradeStation. So a couple of nice accolades there for you. How are you doing today, James? I'm fantastic. Thank you for hosting me on the show. And uh, I actually remember talking to, to the leadership of Benzinga back in Michigan about crypto before you guys got kicked in. So it's been a super when was exciting that? ride. I want to say 2014, 2015, when nice. it was really starting to just rock and roll. So it was, uh, it's been quite an interesting ride for crypto as it's kind of infused into the financial system. When did you guys start developing uh, a crypto segment at, over at TradeStation? We got started back in 2014 doing crypto mining. Wow. And uh, it probably took us two years to really even build up the right knowledge in-house to be able to even consider doing some type of crypto business. Yeah, I, I bet. I bet. And so you, you're you going to be giving us some really good education here. Uh, crypto 101, cryptocurrencies, and why you should consider for your portfolio. And hang tight for a little while. This is going to be like a rather long segment. You got like a good 35, 40 minutes here, right? Right, James? I think so. I'm excited to, to share this information. All right. I'll let you have at it, sir. Awesome. So guys, thank you for the time and listening. Uh, TradeStation Crypto, we've been around, well, TradeStation as a brand has been around now for almost 35 years. We have equities, options, futures, futures, options, and I represent the crypto business, which is an extension to our trading offering. Uh, just quick disclaimer, uh, all the information that you see here is my opinion. It's not a representation from TradeStation, uh, but I'll talk to you more today about the great stuff that's going on in crypto. Before we get started, I just want to drill into one thing. Uh, over the next 10 years, there's going to be more game-changing technologies that are about to go through these mass adoption phases than any other time in human history. So if you take nothing out of this presentation, do not be afraid of change because it is coming and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Uh, what I'm talking about here is that we're in this age of exponential technology growth. And when you combine that with mass adoption, we're about to see massive explosions in value in many sectors and many industries around the world. Uh, real quickly on Metcalfe's law, basically it's how we evaluate Facebook, Amazon, Google, Netflix. It says that the more people that adopt the network, the more value is extracted for that network for the users. And it goes on an exponential curve. And so this is what's really driven a lot of the valuations in the tech sectors since early 2000s. And so what we're seeing in the next 20 years is a significant change in 
all of the technologies we interact with. At the infrastructure level, we're going to have global connectivity on 5G and 6G, blazing fast internet in every corner of the world. We're going to have distributed computing power. We're going to have cheap green electricity. At this productivity layer, we're going to have good access to artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, fastening the pace of, of how we can uh, become more productive, 3D printing, changing manufacturing, autonomous vehicles. You just heard in the previous segment about the copper and yacht in the vehicles. Consider this in the next 10 years, all vehicles on the planet will become obsolete as we start to move into autonomous and smart vehicles. So that's going to be a massive shift as we start to replace all those vehicles around the world. The digital value layer, this is this financial layer. When you have all this connectivity in the world, you need a financial network that will function as fast paced as the uh, growth in, in commerce that's happening. And crypto and blockchain is one big piece of how that's going to function. Then we also have the human layer. We have this biotech. If you look at what's going on with CRISPR technology, uh, what we just did with vaccines, with the RNA technology, is pretty amazing. The IoT segments, that's really exploding, making sure we've got data everywhere and connectivity. The last thing is the metaverse. Uh, metaverse is basically these online worlds. About two and a half billion people in the world already live and interact in this metaverse. And that's what, 25, 30% of the population of the planet. And what they're doing is they're communicating, they're owning assets, they're buying and selling things, and they're earning money inside of these worlds. Now, Maybe I could simplify it. If you have kids and they play games, that's typically a metaverse. They exist in this connected world where they're engaging with their friends. Uh, they will go outside and play soccer, come back in and engage on the network with their friends playing video games. And those are these types of metaverses that are evolving. And inside of that, we really think that cryptocurrency or some type of digital native asset is going to be essential for these folks to transact. So. That's my kind of big picture. A lot of stuff is changing. I'm gonna drill into some blockchain basics. Uh, for those of you that know crypto, this might be a little remedial. For those of you that don't, this is gonna be pretty good primer. And then I'm gonna jump into different market trends, what's gonna, how this is gonna impact you and what you can do about it. We're gonna talk a lot about inflation and, and possible ways to protect yourself and your portfolio. So on the basics, you have blockchain and you have cryptocurrency. Blockchain, think of it as infrastructure and database, and you have cryptocurrency, which is, think of that as the value. So in Bitcoin, you have the Bitcoin blockchain, which is the database or the transaction layer, and you have Bitcoin itself, which is the unit of value. And Bitcoin is what you send all around, and the, all those transactions from person to person in Bitcoin are recorded into blockchain. So database infrastructure, actual unit of value. Similar things that happen with a variety of other types of blockchains, whether it's Ethereum, Litecoin, Helium, those are kind of the two components you're going to have inside of a, uh, a blockchain ecosystem. Real kind of fundamental piece, how is a transaction get into a blockchain? So if we're going to make a transaction, let's say I'm going to send a transaction to my wife. So I'm going to send one Bitcoin to her. What I'll do is I'll broadcast. I'll send something very similar to the way I would send an email or a transfer on Venmo. That transfer is going to be sent out to the network of computers that are uh, powering block, powering the Bitcoin blockchain, they're going to then package my transaction into a group of other transactions that call out a block. And once that block has been formed with enough transactions, it's going to be then broadcast out to the network. And I'm not going to go into the super technical details, but there's a lot of stuff that's going on. Simply a bunch of transactions bundled into a block. It gets broadcast out to the network. Once you have 
51% of all the computers that are engaged in the network to say, yes, this is a good block of transactions, gets added to the overall blockchain. And there's a bunch of stuff that happens with encryption to make sure that you cannot go back and change the history of the blocks and that each block builds on the next one. And so we can definitely do another session about encryption, but probably keep it as high level as possible. Once you have that block, it's then distributed out to all computers in the network and that transaction is now complete. And what you have in this blockchain is essentially a type of database or transaction ledger that is public and anybody that has a computer, a phone can participate in observing the blockchain, looking at what the balances are at each one of those accounts on the blockchain and basically adding power and securing the network. It's a pretty cool concept. Uh, this concept of blockchain was really brought to the forefront in 2008 with Satoshi Nakamoto and his white paper. There's been different pieces of this throughout history. Probably in the last 30 years, there's been uh, types of digital currencies, been types of databases like this, there's been types of encryption. And this really pulled it all together with uh, Bitcoin and, and its blockchain. Uh, prior to having blockchain, what you have to do, and, and still many people do this today, is you go, if I want to send money to my wife, I can go onto Venmo. Basically, I tell Venmo, send $100. It's going to go to my bank. It's going to pull out $100 from my bank. It's going to then send it to her Venmo account. And then when she wants to withdraw it, she needs to then withdraw to the bank. In that chain of transaction, there's a lot of different institutions. There's my bank, whatever bank Venmo is at, whatever bank my wife is at. And along the way, there's different fees and different delays. It's not instantaneous and it's not um, uh, just not super conducive when you're going to have transactions globally at scale. Uh, in the US, it's a little bit, um, we have a very mature infrastructure. So this use case seems very natural for us. But for someone like me who travels all around the world, it becomes much harder. Uh, if I want to, let's say, tip a taxi driver in Czech Republic, I can't just Venmo them. There's a process that I have to go through. I have to have a localized bank or a localized type of Venmo, maybe I use Revolut, and that makes me isolated into the European Union. When you look at blockchain or Bitcoin specifically, I'm able to do peer-to-peer -peer transactions with anybody on the planet. And soon as we become a multiple planetary species, I'll be able to transfer that to anybody anywhere in the universe that has access to our internet and our, and our blockchain. So if you can imagine, I want to tip the taxi driver. I can send him $10 in Bitcoin directly to him without having to go through all the different intermediaries, without having to go through all the different currency transactions. So it really creates a much simpler streamlined transaction. And Bitcoin is one, but there's many, many more types of transactions we can use. What makes all this possible? So we talked about blockchain, we talked about transactions. Uh, each, each user of the blockchain has what's called a wallet. And we probably should have called this something different, but it's called a wallet. And a wallet is basically an account. Think about uh, on the blockchain, you're going to have a number, which is your account number. That account number is associated with your wallet. And that wallet is where you're going to hold all of your digital assets. So in the case of Bitcoin, that wallet will hold all of your Bitcoin. That Bitcoin, that wallet is an address on the Bitcoin blockchain. And if you want to receive funds, you have what's called the public key. So that wallet has two keys, the public key, which is what you share with people. That's your account number. Anybody that wants to send crypto to you will use that number in order to send that to you. So that's like your routing number, your bank account number, all in one. Uh, if you want to send to somebody else, you have your private key. 
And your private key is kind of like your password. And that is in order to send your Bitcoin, you need to use your private key to send the funds from your wallet to whatever receiving wallet you'd like to send it to. So that's kind of the basics building blocks that we need to talk about. Um, I'm going to shift directions here and talk a little bit about all the different ones. So uh, we've got around over 4,000 different types of crypto assets, and they're more than just Bitcoin. Uh, they are all types of different products. So you have Bitcoin, which is the oldest one that we're aware of. Uh, it works really well as collateral. It works really well as a uh, store value. A lot of people like to think about this as uh, gold 2.0. It's a digitally native asset. Uh, it's, a lot of folks are looking at this as a, a offset to inflation. You have Ethereum, which is the, think about that like Amazon or the world computer. And so it's a it's a type of network that you can write programs on top of. You can build applications on top of. It's almost like the app store on top of a blockchain. And that's super interesting because people are building companies. They're building businesses on top of the Ethereum blockchain. You may have heard about DeFi or uh, non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Those are typically built on type of on top of Ethereum, where you have these different protocol layers or different ways that you can host an application directly on a blockchain. Uh, going down the line, you have stable coins. Uh, those are coins that are pegged with a stable value. That's going to be, for example, US dollar coin. That's the second largest in the, in the world. That has uh, an audit by Graham Thornton. Uh, they have created by Circle and Coinbase. It means for every one USDC in circulation, there's a dollar in the bank. Uh, you have some things that are going to be like um, algorithmic stable coins that are some type of monetary policy written in code that holds the value of the asset. You also have things like um, gold tokens. So Paxos Gold is a token that for every token, there's an equal amount of gold inside of the, the vault. And that will fluctuate with the value of gold. Uh, there's also a lot of really super interesting things going on with Internet of Things. Um, there's some tokens like Helium or IOTA that allow you to engage in that network. Uh, those are going to be all different ways that are all different tools to empower uh, types of Internet of Things. Helium is one that I'm super interested with. Uh, basically, what you do is you host a router and that router is a access point for all the different IoT things that are on that Helium network. If you know about the scooters that are in your city, those little Lime scooters, Lime scooters use Helium network, so that scooter will report its data up through this Helium network and out into the overall internet, uh, which is great. So that's kind of an interesting interesting type of token. I tend to personally stay on the Bitcoin and Ethereum side. Uh, I like to explore the different tokens that are more out on the risk curve uh, that have what I look for is tokens that have a type of platform where somebody can run a small business on. So think about like the Uber style things where I can host a router and I can get paid. I can, uh, for Filecoin is another one, I can allow somebody to access my disk space and I can get paid. So those types of things that allow individuals to earn an income using these little technologies, those are the ones I'm super interested in. Uh, but there's just a lot, they're all different types. Uh, when you look at them though, the on the risk curve, Bitcoin and Ethereum tend to be the ones that are on the lower side of the risk curve. And then there's a long tail of assets and um, it's a lot of varying degrees of risk. Uh, anybody that's heard of cryptocurrency probably heard about Dogecoin. Uh, that one's also, uh, the retail audience has just driven into that massively. 
Uh, we'll see if there become if it becomes anything. It started off kind of as a joke. It's still a risky coin in that there's not a lot of the money that's being made being plowed back into developing the network. So when you look at Bitcoin, people that have made money at Bitcoin have spent a lot of time developing and putting money investing into the network. Um, Dogecoin and some of the other altcoins, what we're seeing is it's a lot of speculative assets, speculative folks that are getting involved and they're not taking that money out and reinvesting it back into the network. So uh, we'll see what happens over time as the kind of crypto boom uh, continues. Typically what you're going to see is from a Bitcoin halving, which we had in 2020, the market tends to run up for about 280 days after the Bitcoin halving. Somewhere in that range, you're going to find the, the peak of the market. That places us somewhere around September if the patterns hold true after all, all halvings. When Bitcoin runs up, most of the other assets tend to go with it. Uh, what should happen towards, we're in this bull run. After we complete this bull run, we'll see kind of a stabilization and a boring time for two to three years until the next Bitcoin halving. We talk a little bit about market trends. So what drove the price of Bitcoin up? Um, this is a really interesting concept. So I mean, for all of us that are doing any kind of investing, supply and demand typically is what drives the price. And Bitcoin is no, is no different. What we saw last year in 2020 was Bitcoin went through a halving event. In the halving event, you basically reduce the supply of Bitcoin. So on a daily basis, a certain amount of Bitcoins are created. And that's the new supply of Bitcoin. That's the new supply that's been mined. What happens every, I think it's two or three years, is there's a reduction in supply that's created on a new uh, daily basis. And that reduction in supply shifts the supply curve. So it's a shifting of the supply graph. Uh, but also at the same time, we had a massive shift in the demand curve. So if you look at, let's go back like 2013 when we had the previous bull market. It was very hard to get involved in cryptocurrency. It's hard to get access to Bitcoin. You were trading at service providers that you really didn't know. Uh, I would argue in 2017, 2018, it was very similar. We had a lot of well-known, a lot of what's today well-known. We had the Gemini's, the Kraken's, the Coinbase's. Uh, it still took a week to get your account open. You were still taking pictures of your passport and your license just to get your account open. Sorry, a selfie with your license. So there was a lot of friction to get involved in crypto. And these companies looked like financial services companies. They didn't have a long history. Um, and it was just not an easy leap for people to, to, to make. But between 2018 and 2020, there's a lot of work that was done in order to enable much more access. So those original crypto exchanges got a lot better at servicing customers. You have products like Grayscale, companies like Grayscale that brought out their Bitcoin uh, trust, GBTC that brought an enormous amount of access because now anybody with an equities account could access exposure to Bitcoin. So whether that was in your self-directed IRA accounts, whether that was in your self-directed uh, individual equities accounts or joint accounts, you could gain exposure to Bitcoin through GBTC, that instrument. And so that created a lot of access that unlocked a lot of capital to be able to go into that market. On top of it, you had firms like TradeStation, Robinhood, that are all traditional, even are all traditional firms that are open, that have large client places that open up access to this marketplace. So we're now making it much easier for people to get into the market space. You have new products that are out there, so more people can gain access. And then you have on top of it PayPal and Square, which just really shifted the game. And I'll, I'll explain why. So at the very root of it, 
change in supply graph, serious change in demand graph. And when that happens, you have more people that are trying to buy than are available Bitcoins. That means we need to get people to sell in order to uh, satisfy that demand. In order to get people to sell, if the price goes up, and that's sort of the basics of what's going on today uh, in the Bitcoin market. Bitcoin prior to PayPal. So prior to PayPal had 100 million active wallets. Overnight, PayPal launched its service. PayPal has 377 million users. That's almost overnight, you have access to 3.7 times more people to the network of Bitcoin than you did the day before. Now, not everybody's gonna engage in, in Bitcoin. That's not what we're trying to say. But what we're trying to show here is that one company almost quadrupled the number of people that have access to this network. That's a massive number of people. And during that time, if you remember, we talked about how many Bitcoins are mined. PayPal users were buying on a daily basis more Bitcoin than were created new, which is part of what drove the price up. We mentioned Grayscale, the product GBTC. So Grayscale through most of 2020 was buying up more Bitcoin than were created on a daily basis. So you have PayPal buying more, you have Grayscale customers buying more. Grayscale, just for some perspective, in January, they bought 54% more Bitcoin than was mined in the month of January. So it has to come from somewhere. The price has to go up in order for people to start to sell. And that's what we've been seeing is this sort of reflexive loop. More people have access, more people want it. We need to find those that source. So in order to get people to sell, the price needs to go up. And that's just the kind of basic supply and demand shift that's been going on. And when you look at Bitcoin, it's really the index from most of the other assets. Bitcoin sort of leads the way. Uh, I think it's still today about 50% of the, a little over 50% of all activity, all participation still occurs on Bitcoin network. And that acts as kind of like the S&P index for the, for the equities market. It, it really is the leader when Bitcoin goes up shortly after the altcoins tend to follow. Uh, once the altcoins fall off, Bitcoin tends to also go back up. So there's a really unique interplay between altcoins and, uh, and Bitcoin. And so part of this also, we mentioned, is just going mainstream. The adoption and the acceptance has expanded. So you have an asset class that, that went above $1 trillion in market cap. You've got a lot of participants that are looking to get into the space or are already in the space. It's becoming acceptable for banks to come in the space. It's acceptable for brokers. Uh, it's getting to the point that if it's not now, it will be shortly where it's not acceptable to not be involved in the space from a financial services provider. We look at the firms that we've got listed on the table in terms of corporate interaction you have blackrock one of the largest etf fund managers in the world morgan stanley you have goldman sachs fidelity jp morgan visa bny mellon mastercard ibm square tesla mass mutual guggenheim the list can go on it's there's a tremendous amount of corporate interest so not only did we talk about paypal we also talked about grayscale we also talked about the retail brokers now i'm bringing you banks they're all trying to get into space. Now, the groups that we're looking at, they tend to start with Bitcoin. They don't start with the long tail of assets. So that just fuels more interest in the space. It drives the price up, drives the market cap up, and then you have a depreciating supply. And that's one of the fundamental things that most people are excited about about Bitcoin is a finite supply. It has a depreciating supply, depreciating number of coins, and you have more participants that are interested to get in the space. 
we continue to see this activity and, and grow. And it's great to see that uh, Bitcoin's over a trillion dollar market cap. What's super interesting is that Bitcoin is the eighth largest asset. So when you stack it up against assets by market cap, it's bigger than Tesla, Facebook, Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, it's behind the FANG stocks, tech stocks. It's behind gold, but it's about to overtake silver. So those are super interesting to look at. Why should we care about market cap? Uh, market cap is arguably much more important than price. Market cap is like your swimming pool. The larger the market cap, the more people can come in and play. Uh, if you think about, let's say me as a retail investor, I don't need the market cap to be very big to buy one Bitcoin and not have the impact. If I'm Tesla and I wanna buy one and a half billion dollars in Bitcoin, I better have a decent sized market cap so I don't skew the market. At a trillion dollars, they're buying one, one and a half percent of the market cap and it's not shifting the market. It's, we're not even noticing. So that's kind of that interesting concept to think about. The larger the pool, the bigger the players that can come in. At a trillion dollars, it's big enough for companies to get involved with. At ten trillion dollars, it's bigger, big enough for sovereign wealth funds, potentially governments, potentially central banks. So, the larger the market cap, the more accessible um, it is to to different players. And we'll see. Does it continue to go up? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Um, I would like to see it go up, but no idea whether it actually does. Um, but if we look at how Bitcoin and cryptocurrency have performed this year, it has destroyed the US equity market. It has destroyed gold markets. It has destroyed the bond market. So the performance is insane relative to the, its peers. Uh, if you look at bonds and gold, they're going to hammer. Uh, if you look at the equity markets, it's up 10%. So that performance that we're seeing on cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and Ethereum specifically, is impressive relative to its peers. That performance, that market cap, that retail interest, that corporate interest, all of that is helping to fuel this excitement and interest and participation in the space. And what's super interesting about those companies and those larger firms is that they are, as they get invested into the Bitcoin network, they're also invested in helping to secure the network, helping to mature the network. Uh, if you look at TradeStation, for example, we do everything we can to provide the right infrastructure, technology, security, and access. And so you have many firms like us that are also trying to add value and to try to help people engage more in the space. Now this one, uh, this one should probably scare you a little bit. Uh, I don't mean to be uh, doom and gloom, but I wanna highlight that since 2020, the M2, the measure of money, in the US, how many dollars are in circulation, that M2 money supply has increased 26% in one year. That's the largest single one-year jump since 1943. So if I were to say it differently, 25% of all dollars in circulation on the planet were created in the last year. So that's an enormous amount of dollars that were added to the circulating supply. If you go back to 2008, that big market crash we had, if you go from 2008 until today, the G4 central banks have increased their balance sheet by 618%. That's on average 13% a year increase on the G4 bank, central bank balance sheets. So if you were to kind of break that down, 
what that equates to is a 15 and a half percent annual deflation in the currency devaluation sorry annual inflation or devaluation of the currency so just stew on that for a minute 15 percent devaluation on all dollars and that's been accelerated in the last year as we printed many many more dollars so what does that mean that means that in order to break even on your savings or your money you need to be earning 13 to 15 percent a year just to break even and stay at pace with what's going on on the around the world since 2008. so 13 to 15 percent is a lot especially when you consider that the average annual growth of the s p is 15 percent so why should you care about that s p 500 is how we evaluate risk it's how we benchmark all of the performance of all the funds and that is what we say and we tell everybody in the finance world s p and stocks is the benchmark it's also the risky asset so the risky asset that is the benchmark is just keeping pace with the devaluation of the currency at 15 percent so that's a crazy 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 metric to think about so just to break even you got to buy the s p 500. so if you were to not look at the s p 500 and you were to just focus on the fang stocks since 2008 you would have earned an additional 17%. So you would break even, you'd cover that 15% and you'd earn an extra 17% on top of it since 2008. That's just isolating on the bank stocks. So if you were to pick the dominant networks, focus in those stocks, you would have, you would have turned on average 17%. If you have taken that same time period and focused your efforts on cryptocurrency, the performance is 200%. So you would cover that 15% and you'd have earned 200% per year on top of it. Now, I'm not telling you to go off to buy cryptocurrencies. The main point of this slide is stocks are just staying break even. Uh, are we in a bubble? It's hard to argue that we're in a bubble for stocks when it's just break even. So uh, it's a kind of a very scary concept to think about. And it's really about if you were to do S&P 500, we quoted in dollars, that value of the dollar is declining or decreasing. And so it, it causes the the asset to increase. We're seeing across the world, across the US, housing prices, um, raw materials, the, the various things that we need to buy on our daily basis are increasing relative to the dollar. And it's not that they're getting much more valuable, it's that the dollar is getting weaker against those assets. So you need more dollars to buy those assets. In some cases, like lumber, there's definitely shortages and you're seeing those supply and demand shifts. But overall, broadly speaking, the dollar, the denominator of those, that valuation is getting, is decreasing in value. So you need more dollars to buy. So take away from this slide, think about your portfolios. You've got to make 15% just to keep up with what's going on at the G4 bank level, central bank level. So how does this impact you? Since 1960, there's never been this much cash sitting in deposits at commercial banks. So if you are a individual with cash in the bank, if you're a company with cash in the bank, uh, remember 15% is your number. Huge amount of cash that's just sitting in the bank. Start thinking about what are you doing with that cash because holding it in treasuries is not keeping pace. The um, I think the benchmark for treasury rates is 1.8%. If you look at the Barclays bond index, it's somewhere a little higher than that. Um, so just to earn on that cash, you're probably 
if you're going to do treasuries, you're going to earn a little bit. If you're just sitting in the bank, you're probably earning very little interest rate. And that cash is basically melting underneath you at a rate of 15% a year. Uh, so you're just sitting on this melting ice cube uh, in what is perceived as the safety asset. So think about what you're doing with your savings. Think about what you're doing with your corporate treasuries and think about what assets you can start to put that in in order to protect yourself against the currency devaluation that's, that's ongoing. The other thing that's happening is that uh, we as a financial services industry have subscribed to this idea. If you go, whether it's your advisors, whether it's the financial sites, uh, it's almost always a recommendation that follows an asset allocation, some type of 60-40, uh, some type of stocks and bonds split between your portfolio based on your age. So what I just mentioned before on the previous slides is that we have to cover this number of 15%. Bonds are getting around 1.5, 1.8%. It's not keeping pace. So people around the world, investors, portfolio managers, bankers, are realizing they have a lot of capital in bonds. And that bond is like that melting ice cube. It's not keeping pace with the devaluation. The, the yields aren't there, the values aren't there. That money is going to rotate out of bonds into something else. And you've got to think about where your portfolio is because are you allocated to stocks and bonds? Is it the right place for you? Talk to your advisor. Uh, think about what other assets you can engage with because remember, equities, the benchmark is just keeping pace. It's just break even. So think about what you're doing with your savings, with your portfolios, figure out if bonds are right for you, figure out if stocks are right for you. The smart money is rotating out of bonds. Um, it's not a lot of great options for them, but they're finding new assets. Uh, gold is definitely a beneficiary of this. Cryptocurrency is one of the beneficiaries of this. Physical assets, high-end real estate beneficiaries of this. Uh, but currency deflation, bond overallocation, these are two overarching themes that are definitely impacting your personal portfolios and any of the savings you have or your corporate treasuries. So those are super important things to keep in mind. So what can you do about it? Uh, when you look at the conventional asset allocation approach, 60-40, uh, it was great. It did great from 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Uh, now, think about how you're going to allocate. The money is rotating into other assets, assets that are better protected against inflation, better protected against currency devaluation, and also with trying to find new assets other than bonds. If you look at some of the smarter companies, some of the companies we respect a lot, Tesla, Square, MassMutual, MicroStrategies, all of these people have realized that having their corporate treasury completely in dollar-based or fiat-based assets is not ideal. It doesn't bring them the right shareholder value. So they're starting to look for other things. Cash and treasuries are performing very similar. So they're looking at assets. And in these examples, these guys found cryptocurrency. Uh, other firms may find gold or high-end real estate or other assets, but it's becoming more and more acceptable for treasurers to hold a type of digital asset on their balance sheet. And companies like Tesla, Square, MassMutual, MicroStrategy will see how they perform and how the stock market either penalizes them or rewards them for what they've done. So it'll be interesting to see. James, I want to give you like a five minute here. We might have some time for some questions. If you want to take a couple questions, that'd be yep. a good time to do it. Or if you got anything to like finish up on really quickly, go for it. Nope. So I'll just, I'll kind of end with this is that um, 
adoption of cryptocurrency is happening. It's happening fast. Uh, what's going on with cryptocurrencies beyond just Bitcoin, uh, there's a lot of different tools that are available. And because our interest rates are so low around the world, there are new products that are coming out that, uh, for example, T-Mobile offers you 4% interest on your cash you want to park with them. Uh, TradeStation has an account where we will pay you interest up to 6% on the dollar-based assets you have. We'll also pay you on other crypto assets interest. Uh, BlockFi also has something similar. Gemini has something similar. There's new interest rate products that are coming out because of cryptocurrency that are super interesting to look at. Uh, I'll definitely open to take some questions. You can talk more trading. I can go in any direction you'd like to go. Where's like my, I need my like gym rag. That was like, <laughs> Sorry. I'm sweat. I mean, that was a ton of good education. My, my body wasn't working, but my mind was making my body sweat <laughs> with all the, the good info you gave there, James, really appreciate it. And we did have a bunch of good questions in the chat and I got a, a couple for myself that I think you're going to like. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you, you know, um, what tips could you give a crypto investor or a prospective crypto investor about making a decision which of the thousands of cryptos they could fit into their own strategy? Like, how do you how do you give somebody a recommendation on how they could go about starting? Yeah, so I think it depends on your trading style. Um, I think the the first thing is it's not a get rich quick. Take a longer time horizon. This is this is a trade that's on for multiple years. Uh, when you're thinking about which assets to select, uh, argue, uh, I would argue, ignore all the news sites, uh, <laughs> except for Benzinga. But Thank you. Except for Benzinga, you guys have great research out there. Uh, but what happens is a lot of times that it gets picked up with what's the most talked about, not necessarily what's the best for the, for the investor. Uh, right. And so what I've just kind of highlighted today is most of these companies are starting at Bitcoin. That's the easiest access point. So I'm a technical trader by nature. I, I try to follow the whales. And I try to follow the main, the kind of the bigger, smarter people. And for me, that direction right now is they're heading into Bitcoin. Uh -huh. uh, you don't need to hold the whole Bitcoin. That's the greatest thing. You can buy $10 of Bitcoin and uh, it's, it seems volatile and it does have volatility compared to other assets, but it's nowhere near as volatile or as risky as some of the longer tail assets. Right. Um, I would definitely steer you away from Dogecoin. <laughs> uh -oh. Ignore that one. Oh no, the chat, the chat is going crazy on you, Jake. I'm just joking. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, something that it was, was big in the news last week, this week was, I think, you know, crypto investors, well, maybe, maybe they've been thinking about this for a little, a little while, but at least on my end of things, I was seeing it sort of for the first time, you know, do you think this, this kind of thing that we heard last week, this week about energy consumption, fossil fuel uh, consumption related to crypto mining? I mean, do you think this is a hurdle for the industry? No, they're not uh, concerned. It, not concerned at all. I mean, it's awesome. If you dig around, I think that uh, some of the previous speakers may have spoke about this. There's pockets of energy that's orphaned, that's not being used. And as we move faster towards green energy, that it's going to become much less of a concern. Now, I would say that if you have a coal mining plant plugged into your mining operation, probably not a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, the, the people, people are putting their mining operations very close to natural resources. So whether it's mm -hmm. by hydroelectric power, whether it's by um, wind, you know, there's a lot of that happening. And even in natural gas capture, there's so much wasted energy there 
that's just not being utilized. What tends mm -hmm. to happen is you get these bigger mining companies that come into areas and they're able to take it, they're able to use that excess capacity. And mm -hmm. there's definitely, uh, those firms need to be responsible because you can't have them take all the electricity for a village and now the, the prices go up. So that's the thing where there's a mm -hmm. level of required responsibility by those organizations. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, James, I think we are going to let you go. That was an awesome educational seg segment on Crypto 101. We had James Putra. He's VP of Product Strategy for TradeStation Crypto, TradeStationCrypto.com. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Have a good weekend. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.